American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello. Welcome to American Catholic History. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today we're looking at how the return of stolen goods led to the protection of the seal of confession in American law. Before we talk about the events surrounding this case, though, let's talk about what the seal of confession is. So the seal of confession, remember that in confession, the penitent is confessing his sins to God with the priest being only the mediator, the agent of the church, which God gave us to forgive sins. So when you say something in confession, a priest hears it, but you're saying it to God primarily. The seal of confession means that the priest may not in any way whatsoever reveal or cause to make known what was said in confession. If he does, if he breaks the seal of confession, he incurs an immediate excommunication upon himself, and that excommunication can only be lifted by the Pope himself. So that's the background for what we're talking about here. Okay, so how, when, and where did this come up as a question of law in America? So we're going back to 1813 in New York City. Daniel and Mary Phillips, a married couple, were indicted for receiving stolen goods. They were not indicted for having stolen the goods, but for having received goods that had been stolen. The rightful owner of the property, a man named James Keating, was pressing charges and pursuing the matter until he received his property back, at which point he apparently elected to just drop it entirely. So how did there end up being a court case about this? Well, the police and the prosecutor weren't as interested in the idea of just dropping the matter. So they brought Keating in for questioning to find out what was going on, how did he get his stuff back, and who gave it to him. Trying to find out why was he suddenly uninterested in pursuing the matter. Keating resisted until, he was, until they actually threatened him with prosecution, at which point he revealed that he had received his goods back from his pastor, Father Anthony Coleman S.J., who was also the apostolic administrator for the Young Diocese of New York. So the priest decided to talk to Father Coleman, and um, that's Coleman K.O. H-L-M-A-N-N. So he's a German priest, right? Well, it depends on who you ask. He was actually born in Alsace, which is in modern-day France, but had been part of the Holy Roman Empire, then the German Empire, and was a disputed territory before World War II. Father Coleman had been sent by his superiors to America to teach, and he did teach, but he ended up doing a whole lot more in his 25 years in this country. His name will actually come up a few more times in future of our podcasts. But in this case, Father Coleman declined to reveal from whom he had obtained the items or any other information about the matter because he had learned of it in confession and had made the return of the goods through him the required penance. Well, that didn't satisfy the prosecution, who included him in the indictment still pending against Phillips and his wife. Okay, so we're headed to trial. What happened at the trial? So the matter did go to trial, and Father Coleman steadfastly refused to give evidence. But he found an unlikely ally in a Protestant Irish immigrant, William Sampson. Sampson had been a lawyer in Ireland where he had fought for the rights of Catholics against British oppression for years. In fact, he fought so well, he was a Protestant, but he fought so well for Catholic rights, he was eventually exiled by the British. Good move for us, really. Um, so Sampson, who was an attorney pointed out to the court that not even in Ireland, where the penal laws meant that the Catholics had basically no rights at all, were Catholic priests compelled to reveal what they had learned in confession. So at the founding of our country, with people coming to 
have religious liberty, the arguments that Samson was making must have resonated with the court. Uh, it, it, it certainly did. The court deliberated on the question, and then they actually voted unanimously that no, a priest ought not be compelled to violate the seal of confession. The opinion of the court was written by the Protestant mayor of New York, DeWitt Clinton, and I'll read some parts of his opinion. First, he lays out what he sees to have been the question at stake. Quote, the question then is whether a Roman Catholic priest shall be compelled to disclose what he has received in confession in violation of his conscience, of his clerical engagements, and of the canons of his church, and with the certainty of being stripped of his sacred functions and cut off from religious communion and social intercourse with the de denomination to which he belongs. This is an important inquiry. It is important to the church upon which it has a particular bearing. It is important to all religious denominations because it involves a principle which may in its practical operation affect them all, unquote. So they recognize that the internal requirements of the Catholic faith imposed a burden on Father Coleman's conscience that he could not set aside. And they recognize that if they didn't respect that, that it would, as he said, affect all of them. Yes. Uh, yes, indeed. And then a couple paragraphs later, Clinton recognized that there are other situations where the law recognizes a person's right not to testify, like a married couple, attorney-client communications, and of course, the protection against self-incrimination, the well-known plead, plead the fifth defense. So, and then throughout the rest of the op opinion, Clinton makes clear that his concern is state coercion against a religious obligation. He even explicitly says that while Protestants don't have confession, they do have baptism in the Lord's Supper, and asks what the reaction among Protestants would be if the state tried to coerce something that violated either of those. And then he ends with this, but until men under pretense of religion act counter to the fundamental principles of morality and endanger the well-being of the state, they are to be protected in the free exercise of their religion. If they are in error or if they are wicked, they are to answer to the supreme being, not to the unhallowed intrusion of frail, fallible mortals. We speak of this question not in a theological sense, but in its legal constitutional bearings. Although we differ from the witness and his brethren in our religious creed, yet we have no reason to question the purity of their motives or to impeach their good conduct as citizens. They are protected by the laws and constitution of this country in the full and free exercise of their religion, and this court can never countenance or authorize the application of insult to their faith or of torture to their consciences." Unquote pretty clear that he understood this to be a matter of free exercise and not merely the protection of a minority or a conscience protection. Sure. So how has this case influenced later law? Well, it led pretty directly, though 15 years later, to a, a religious liberty law passed in New York State in 1828, which stated, quote, no minister of the gospel or priest of any denomination whatsoever shall be allowed to disclose any confession made to him in his professional character in the course of discipline and joined by the rules or practices of such denomination. Again, this clearly is not about minority rights or protection for conscience. This is explicitly a law protecting the free exercise of religion. But this case was in New York City, correct? Mm -hmm. So what effect has it had nationally? Well, nationally, all 50 states in the District of Columbia do have laws on the books that protect certain communications between clergy and church members, which have of course, means communications that do not have the theological underpinnings of sacramental confession that we understand as Catholics. But as far as court cases, there's, there really hasn't been much precedent. It really hasn't been cited as a substantial precedent in free exercise cases. Uh, and when people talk about it, they usually do refer to it as being about the protection of a minority or of a conscience protection. 
So while what it actually did and what it means has been recognized across the country for many years, it hasn't had an impact in the courts. No, not really. The real value of it as, is as the first case of the seal of confession being questioned within American law. And the clear decision was in favor of free exercise. And that decision was made by a panel of Protestants with a Protestant mayor writing the opinion during a time when anti-Catholicism was a powerful force and was actually growing. Perhaps it's time to be revisited more seriously, given today's climate. Mm. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. To learn more about today's topic, to find previous episodes, and to send feedback, please visit sqpn.com slash history. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or follow StarQuest on social media at facebook.com slash starquestmedia or on Twitter at sqpn. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest.